Hello, and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques Digital Editor, Tristan Free, and in this episode, we'll be looking at the process that is essential to many fields, from vaccines and drug development to structural biology and beyond, recombinant protein production, particularly the production of challenging proteins. Coming up on the podcast, find out why this is an exciting time for recombinant proteins, this is a golden age for in proteining and protein evolution because there are a lot of tools available. And I think the Nobel Prize in the, I think the 2018 was rewarded to scientists who discovered phage display and directed protein evolution. Discover why cells are being left behind in the production of recombinant proteins. Basically, we're ditching the cells <laughs> altogether. Just, you know, grab the guts of the cells to say, hey, you know, let's make proteins this way in the test tube, just like a reaction and learn why our guest is all for a Terminator-style uprising in recombinant protein production. I mean, I am actually all in for these, you know, machine uprising. <laughs> so I think biologists, we don't build the Skynet, but, <laughs> but I think the more advanced machine learning or, you know, automation-based system is going to help us in a great deal in order to design and, you know, make recombinant proteins. So joining me today is Yuning Chen, R&D manager at Silo Biological and an expert in recombinant protein expression, purification, and characterization. Yuning, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Excellent. So I think most of our audience will be largely familiar with the concept of recombinant protein, so modified proteins generated from a genetic code that's been engineered mm -hmm. to allow the resulting protein to complete a specific function. But can you tell us a little bit more about the production process? Yeah, of course. I think you're right about the general workflow. So basically, you have a protein of interest. And uh, in order to, quote unquote, mass produce the protein of interest, we have to put them into a vector. I think for most of the cases are in the format of plasmids. And then we transfer these plasmids into host cells. It could be mammalian cells or it could be bacterial cells. There are a variety of host cells to select from. And once the plasmids are in the cell and they uh, kind of harness the endogenous protein expression machinery of the host cell to make the proteins overexpress the proteins. And then once they're made, we will have to either extract the proteins from culture media or we break the cells open and extract the proteins intracellularly. But by all means, it's going to be a combination of different chromatography methods that we use in order to separate the target proteins from these, you know, quote-unquote host cell protein contaminants. And then after that, we're going to put these proteins to interrogate their stability in different format of buffer and storage conditions and to figure out what is the best buffer formula and the storage condition to use to make this protein stable for as long as possible. Excellent. And so then once you've isolated those proteins and you've separated them out from all of the proteins of the vector that you've grown it in, then what are they used for? What are the key applications? So recombinant proteins are actually used very widely in the field of biological studies and drug developments. And even in our everyday basis, because uh, you know, many industrial enzymes are by nature proteins. So for a research setting, they're mostly used for to elucidate the structure so that we can have an idea if or what kind of modifications we're going to use to make these proteins better. And also they're a source material for drug development. Many antibodies are targeting those recombinant proteins on the cell surface or 
Uh, nowadays, I believe they have you know antibodies targeting cells intracellularly, which uh, is kind of magnificent. And you know, since antibodies are proteins themselves, so you know, recombinant proteins are used as therapeutic agents as well. And like I mentioned earlier, like enzymes are also used as industrial catalysts. So they're basically everywhere in our life. They're really sort of permeating the whole scientific spectrum almost in terms of yes. the biosciences. And so what can make these proteins and the desired target protein difficult or challenging to design and produce over some simpler, say, protein? Right. So this is a very good question. And we encounter this every day. So, you know, some proteins are designated to be massively produced, for instance, antibodies, right? So we consider antibodies are relatively easy to make. For some other proteins, so I think their expression level is kind of determined by the biological functions of these proteins. You know, they exist inside the cell and the cells want to make a tiny bit of it and to make it do its job and then degrade it, right? But since we're asking the host cell to massively produce these proteins, there can be problems, either the protein themselves or it's going to cause some damage to the host cell, or there are some certain regions on the proteins, for instance, these hydrophobic regions or some disordered regions, and will make these proteins more prone to aggregate once they're produced in a massive manner. So when we encounter a protein, we need to do some careful analysis of the sequence first and make some assessment to see if this protein is suitable for this type of a massive recombinant protein expression process. And so when you encounter those challenges, so be it the damage that can be caused to the cell just by producing these sort of the vast volumes and concentrations of a protein, how are you trying to overcome them and sort of maybe protect the cell or are you trying to limit the protein expression per cell? Once we have a sequence of the protein, we would do some sequence analysis in order to identify okay, which part of the protein might be problematic. So to design a construct, essentially, either we try to remove these parts to do a protein truncation, or sometimes we can shield these parts by maybe either putting a fusion tag or uh, fuse it with a different protein partner. I think the bottom line or the general guideline is to sustain the functionality of the target protein and in the meantime, try to eliminate all those quote-unquote risk factors that might be problematic to the protein expression. Okay. And the last year has really sort of thrown the utility of antibodies into the limelight, both in terms of so viral detection, obviously for COVID-19, but also for potential therapeutics and sort of studies of the immune system and variable responses to the disease. So how are antibodies specifically manipulated to take part in these various functions? Okay. First of all, antibodies are proteins, right? So they're relatively easy to make. They have different shapes and formats. You know, different antibodies kick in at different stages of the immune response. But, you know, COVID-19 is actually a, quite a unique case because scientists have access to convalescent plasma and they can extract antibodies directly from these plasma, B-cells directly from these plasma and derive antibodies that are secreted by these B-cells. So they all have these, you know, human antibodies to begin with. So that's actually expedited the process of therapeutic antibody development. However, uh, if we have a, let's say, a cancer target, we can't really extract you know, human antibodies from the patient. So in that case, we'll have a surrogate animal, in the most of cases, rodents. We'll immunize the rodents so that they can generate antibodies that can neutralize these targets or have functionalities that we desire. 
But you know, these are rodent antibodies, so you can't directly put them into humans. So in order to make them more human-like or quote-unquote humanized, from an antibody engineering point of view, we would do something called humanization in order to remove as many parts of these rodent antibodies as possible and to replace them with human counterparts. But if necessary, we will also have to do affinity maturation process, which is to bring the affinity of the humanized antibody back to the, you know, the rodent level or even make it higher than the rodent level. So humanization and affinity maturation, I think, are the major parts that we have to do in order to make these therapeutic antibodies. Uh, but for diagnostic antibodies, not so much quote-unquote engineering effort is required because we can just use rodent antibodies to put them into ELISA kits. However, these antibodies should be like a highly sensitive and highly specific. So a lot of work is concentrated in the uh, screening process to identify the best antibodies in the class, if you will. Excellent. And so then outside of the more basic antibodies, what are some of the most exciting applications of recombinant proteins that you've come across recently? So our company is our contract research service provider. So we actually produce proteins from different genres. Nowadays, well, at least recently, we have been working with proteins that participate in a phenomenon called phase separation, where, which is, you know, the protein can themselves form these liquid droplets, you know, inside the cells in order to entrap something. Yeah, so these proteins are actually, I think that they're becoming hotter and hotter in terms of research because they're participated in many uh, biological processes, for instance, like uh, in cancer or, you know, other immune disease related areas. And also, I think another very so, exciting... Sorry, uh, is it with those proteins, is it that they're mm-hmm. forming kind of almost like a sort of mini lysosome around things within the cell and targeting yeah, those products exactly. to degrade them or and remove them? Or what's the aim in circling them and entrapping those targets? So for instance, there are proteins that can entrap nucleotides, entrap DNA or RNA, and determine you know, where they go in, inside the cells. I think one of the functions might be more intracellular resource distribution, if you will. And, uh, you know, besides the proteins from phase separation, and this is a golden age for, you know, proteinering and uh, protein evolution, because there are a lot of tools available. And I think the Nobel Prize in the, I think the 2018 was rewarded to uh, scientists who discovered phage display and directed protein evolution. So yes, we're in the golden age of that. And uh, I think we're also very excited to participate in you know, several projects with these regards. So yeah, a lot of good things are happening here. <laughs> Excellent. Well, have there been any developments in the sort of production process and the actual creation and, and development of these recombinant proteins that have sort of enabled these new and sort of impactful applications? Yeah, indeed. I think for the phase of proteins participating in phase separation, and they're considered hard to express. So I think people are still, uh, I think the scientific community in general, we're kind of still working our way to identify, you know, the best practice to make these proteins. But for protein engineering and especially antibody engineering, I think there are a lot of quote-unquote high-throughput platforms that are available. You know, some of them are automated and some of them are semi-automated. So that we can, you know, generate essentially thousands of antibodies in a relatively short period of time, or these high-throughput platforms can be used to essentially to screen the protein mutants that we design based on the template. So the automation process really is making a big change 
in the field of recombinant protein expression. And also, there are a lot of like cell-free systems available nowadays, which are also doing some interesting work. So basically, we're ditching the cells <laughs> altogether, just, you know, grab the guts of the cells to say, hey, you know, let's make proteins this way in the test tube, just like a reaction. So that's pretty cool as well. <laughs> so how's that working? Are you then just taking sort of like the endoplasmic reticulum and things like that of the cells that create the proteins or... Yeah. So for instance, let's say in the case of E. coli, uh, we grow the cells to a certain degree and we break the cells and then, you know, take the cellular contents and, you know, the cellular contents contains actually everything that we need, all the, you know, molecular machinery that we need to make proteins. And all we need is to feed the system with the plasmid, you know, contain the protein of interest, you know, these energy molecules and ATP, CTP, GTP, and, and also the, like amino acids. So feed them with the energy, the building blocks and the template, and the reaction can happen in the test tube in a matter of hours. Uh, mm. rather than maybe like overnight or something. So That's you're basically pretty... turning the test tube into the cell, but just a much larger version by removing um, all the membranes. Yeah, I think you can say that. That's, uh, <laughs> As a maybe yeah, slightly quite, reductive quite... <laughs> way of describing it. Yeah, but I think you described it very well. So yeah, essentially, and I think there's a system called Pure, which is we're literally ditching the cells, just you know, take all the enzymes necessary to make the proteins and put them into the test tube as a you know enzyme mixture and then we can add the molecule uh, the building blocks the energy and the template and they can make protein this way as well so yeah people are getting very creative and very resourceful in terms of uh, obtaining recombinant proteins fascinating and so is the main benefit there that it's just accelerating the production process and development process or does it also give you because you know now no longer have to deal with an individual sort of cell unit does it give you slightly more control over the production of the protein? I would say it gave us more control, but I think the cell-free system is, I think the one of the major advantage is that it can produce different constructs simultaneously in a relatively short period of time. So it's a good tool to facilitate these protein evolution and screening efforts. And also, you know, some proteins are toxic to the whole cell. So if you have the cellular system there, once the protein is made to a certain level, it's going to exert some stress to the host cells, which will lead to either degradation of the protein or compromising the overall health of the host cell. But, you know, for cell-free, this problem can be omitted. So we can just use, uh, you know, the components of the cell to make the protein. So it, it won't affect the overall health of the culture. Fantastic. And so what do you think, I think we may have already covered this, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway, just in case, but so what do you think is next for recombinant protein design and production and what requirements are still there to be met? I think this is like a really exciting age that we're in because the development of all sorts of exciting technologies are being applied to biological research, among which I believe is artificial intelligence. And with the launching of these AI algorithms such as AlphaFold, actually it's really like revolutionizing the way you know, we look at proteins in general, and also revolutionize the workflow of protein expression and protein design. So I think it's for the next big thing, the AI is going to be playing a more and more significant role in protein design. And also, I think at this age, we're having a lot of the tools for us to elucidate the structure of the proteins. For instance, I think a long time ago, I would say a long time ago, but a while ago, maybe like a decade or two ago, the major approach the scientists use to obtain the structure of a protein is X-ray crystallography, 
but this is a kind of like a laborious process it requires a lot of proteins and it's really a testing of the you know the recombinant protein expression capability and then comes nmr spectroscopy which is also a very good way to elucidate protein structures but nowadays it's even more exciting that we have this uh, amazing technique called the quiro em so which it's an electron microscope that can actually you know generate these 3d configurations of a protein and by taking like thousands of images of a protein you know, from different angles, they can constitute a 3D model of the protein and then analyze and figure out you know, what the structure of the protein is. The cryo-EM is much more, I think, user-friendly, maybe the right term. I mean, it doesn't require a lot of material to begin with. And also, so that's, I think, it's one of the reasons why nowadays more and more people are using this approach to crack the structure of these membrane proteins, which, you know, Back a decade ago or two decades ago, were considered notorious targets, hard to express and hard to get, you know, sufficient quantity to do, you know, extra crystallography or NMR. So I think with the advancement of these uh, structural analysis tools, they're kind of making these blueprints for us so that um, we know the structure of the protein, the wild type, the natural occurring protein. And then we can, you know, based on the structure to make modifications to make the protein more desirable for their applications. What is your dream for the future of protein recombination? <clears throat> Where do you want to see it go, say, in the next five years? I mean, I am actually all in for these, you know, machine uprising. <laughs> so I think biologists, we don't build the Skynet, but... <laughs> But I think the Skynet, if there is one, or I think one is actually, maybe it's closer than we thought. So if we have like a more advanced machine learning or, you know, automation-based system, it's going to help us in a great deal in order to design and, you know, make recombinant proteins. So I think my dream of the future of this recombinant protein expression industry, I would imagine that we will have fully automated robots that help us to do, you know, proteins construct the screenings. And also once an optimization flow has been worked out, a fully automated line all the way from construct screening to industrial grade manufacturing. But maybe within the next five or 10 years, I think there will be some significant advancement in algorithms in order to, you know, either predict the structure of a protein or to help us, you know, select these maybe small molecules for, you know, to inhibit protein functions based on their structures. So I think taken together, you know, we put biology and we put computer science, these two amazing fields, we combine them together. I think that there's a lot of good things that are going to happen in the near future. Maybe not a Terminator, but... <laughs> it would certainly yeah, be a, but... a very different film if the Terminator came back and just happened to be a, a sort of a protein assembly automation workflow. <laughs> but, you know, Indeed. a cheerier one, probably. Less people would die. So, um, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good dream. I think there's so many areas at the moment where automation is just the buzzword and the, the dream. To try and free up more time for researchers to actually be thinking about problems as opposed to literally carrying them out and doing all of this work. <laughs> Yuling, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. If you have enjoyed this episode and would like to find more like them, you can check out the podcast section of our website over on www.biotechniques.com or follow at SciTristan on Twitter for regular updates and threads on our latest episodes. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>